Hi, I'm John Chambers, partner in Corporate Innovation at IE and host of The Corporate Innovator, a podcast that gives you direct access to visionary corporate leaders, makers and advisors to level up your innovation game. The Corporate Innovator is produced by IE, Australia's largest independent innovation company. We work with corporate partners to develop, design and deliver transformative ideas to market. Learn more at ie.com.au. Dr. Ingo Hofacker is a seasoned technology executive, strategic advisor, entrepreneur, and AI and data expert. A German native with global experience, Ingo has worked at a number of consultancies, including Deloitte and Bain. However, today we'll be largely focusing on his time at Deutsche Telekom, where Ingo was involved in a number of key innovation initiatives like the very successful Kivacon smart home open platform, as well as large-scale IoT deployments for the Telco's enterprise clients. Dr. Ingo's core belief is that any problem that can be solved by data will be solved by data. We'll touch on why partners are critical in driving these data-driven initiatives, as well as why having the infrastructure to make sense of the sheer volume of data points can be your key competitive advantage. As Ingo says, the algorithms really haven't changed in the last 20 years, but the data has. Let's find out more from the doctor himself. So welcome, Dr. Ingo, to The Corporate Innovator. It's great to have you live via Zoom from Germany for a special podcast during the, these early days of the COVID virus uh, containment all over the world. So we're both working remotely as it is, but we're, we're remotely doing this podcast together. It's great to have you, Ingo, with us today. Thanks, John, for, for having me with you. I highly appreciate it. Yeah, it's, I'm looking forward to this. I've just got a note that we're, I'm actually working on the lands of the Bunurong people as we record this. And I just want to pay my respects to their elders past and present. And uh, yeah, really looking forward to a, a great chat today. Dr. Ingo's got an amazing background in technology, AI, IoT. And what we really like about the work we've been doing together in the chats we've been having is his very practical approach to bringing these new technologies to clients and to, to companies in general. So we're really going to get into that. One of your biggest roles, I think, was probably with, has been a few roles with Deutsche Telekom, leading um, large businesses in there. How was your time there leading innovative ventures in such a big environment like DT? Yeah, it was, uh, was actually a great time. Even so, I have to say, it's sort of a challenge if you, if you are responsible for innovation at a large company like, like Deutsche, because you have to convince so many people within the organization that this is the next big thing that you want to go after. Now, this being said, once you've got them on your side, there is a lot of punch that these uh, organizations can really develop. It takes some time, but once they got going, then they're really moving and they're doing an awesome job if they're convinced. We've talked a lot about this, but one of the areas that DT has done well, I think, is their Quivicon platform, their smart home platform. When I was leading smart home at Telstra, we had a, a different approach, which was to take the, the full service model, which has proven to be difficult, but Quivicon taking a very thin network and, and device integration or orchestration approach across a broad range of devices. It looks to have gone really well. You were around and involved at the time. Was it a bold move to go after a broad reaching sort of thin IoT layer rather than maybe go for a full stack play? And how's it been going lately over there, do you think? It's quite good in, in terms of penetration of the market. We, we have surpassed the 400K paying customers which is quite good from, from an IoT consumer platform compared to most of, of others that have been uh, started by telcos. Now, at that point when we started, it was back like six, seven years ago, it, it was actually a very early move and people were courageous at the, at the organization because there was some heavy investment required initially. I think it must be considered a success compared to all the others. It's still been pushed by the entire telecom uh, organization. And the reason for that is we 
pretty much build it uh, on one hand side on open source, which we hadn't done before. Um, this is one thing that would make it much more efficient going forward and enable the community to really contribute to the mm. product and the platform. And second, we, we pretty much relied on partners that provided the, all the gadgets like Siemens and, and, and Philips and, and, and many, many others. Miele, for instance, probably know them as well in Australia. Mm. And we basically had this open ecosystem and it was easy for them to integrate their products, their gadgets into the platform and have it just nicely wrapped into, into one app uh, that was running on the website, that was running on smartphones. And this um, has definitely helped to, uh, to drive the penetration. It was more like, this is something on the one hand side, it's technologically advanced, which you would expect from a, from a telco operator. But it was, I think, the first big example where you put your, your customer at, at the heart of your product development going forward. And this is what ultimately led to the success, uh, the ongoing success of, uh, of a Kivikam platform. Do you think other countries could follow suit with what they've achieved in Germany? Was it unique to the settings of Germany and ultimately their ability to expand to Europe? Or do you think other telcos or, or large service companies in other, could follow the same model? They already do. I mean, uh, within Europe, we have hooked on to a couple of other players, not only in the telco industry, but for instance, uh, KPN, which is uh, the incumbent in the telco business in the Netherlands. Uh, they are making use of our platform, which is white label yeah. enabled, so you can still sell it as your own as a telco. And it makes a lot of sense because it's platform business and scale matters and platform, uh, as, as everyone knows. And this is why it makes a lot of sense to tap onto this platform that has already reached a significant scale. And therefore, the answer is yes, be it telco, be it a utilities company, it makes a lot of sense to jump onto that train. Could Kivicon come to, say, Australia and be rolled out here with the right partner? Or would it need to be rebuilt in a different context by a local player like a Telstra, do you think? Well, without knowing all the details, but, but my gut feeling and a bit of experience in telco and also at Telstra uh, would tell me it, it would probably be worthwhile considering that the effort, because it's, it's built on open global standard, the effort shouldn't be that big. You would probably need to have uh, to integrate a couple of Australian providers of gadgets onto the platform, but this is as, as they basically support pretty much the same standards, it shouldn't be much of an issue. Let's talk a little bit more about your background in AI. You've got a PhD in AI, and you're also quoted as saying, anything that can be solved by data will be solved by data. I'd love you to expand on that. What does it mean, and what, is, what should the average corporate be doing differently in this world of, of AI and, and data-driven solutions? Yeah, so I, just, just to say that up front, regarding the PhD in AI, that was 20 years ago when there was like, uh, there was another spring of artificial intelligence, you know, there are always these ups and downs of artificial intelligence. When it re-emerged uh, most recently, a couple of years ago, it was interesting to see that not much has changed. I mean, the, the algorithm, all this stuff, the, the intelligence behind it is pretty much the same. A couple of new approaches uh, are there, but the big difference which we see uh, today is that as compared to what I did, like, 20 years ago, I had to generate more or less my own data. Now the data is everywhere. This is mm. one thing. And, and this is, for instance, driven by, by social media, by IoT and other, and other trends. And then there is this huge compute power, cloud-based uh, in, in general. It wasn't there at that point in time. So this enables much more powerful uh, networks, uh, artificial neural networks and the like. So this is like the, the difference. But other than that, in terms of algorithms, pretty much the same. Now, this being said, and as, as you're referring to what I what I said, every problem that can be solved by data will be solved by data quite soon. I think the data is there already in many, many cases. IoT is driving that right now. We're gathering data and 
and all kind of data. So it's even sound. I spoke to a company um, yesterday that is using ultrasound to enhance predictive maintenance. And this is all this kind of information that's been gathered everywhere through sensor networks and the like microphones, cameras, uh, and, and they, it makes a huge difference. And the, the technology is there to cope with that, and the algorithms are in place. Now, what that would mean for, for large corporates is, of course, that the, the source of competitive advantage going forward will definitely change as compared to the past where it was like heavy assets. Um, now it's more like digital assets. And I think the most important part of that is, is actually the data that you have, data on your customer behavior. There's much more information that you can gather from your customers in terms of their preferences, in terms of the way that they use your products, you, you, you're not able to know that. Right? And when I was in charge at Deutsche for building these kind of apps in, in a core business of Deutsche, not only Kivicon that you refer to, but, but also others like services, we could figure out what kind of apps they use, what kind of, of processes our customers like to use, and then work on that and even enhance them. And this is something that each company should consider. So why could I use customer usage data in order to enhance the product, build additional features on top of it, and, and this kind of thing. And this is the, the core element, the key takeaway from this digitization from a large corporate. The future competition will be built on the data that, that I have and I can make sense of. And it's more about gathering the data items in the first place rather than the algorithms, because the algorithms, they are just public knowledge, if you will. Right? You, you hire a PhD student or not even that, a computer scientist from university, and, and off you go. And, and that's not much of a problem. You need to have the data in the first place. This is what is key. And so in terms of all of that, this evolution of, of AI, although, as you say, it hasn't changed that much in the 20 years you've been looking at it, what's changed is the data. Is it complex? Is AI actually as complex as some of us think? Or is it is it a simple thing? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a good question, actually. It depends on how you look at it. I mean, yes and no. I would say in terms of how, how you come up with the, with an AI-based model, uh, it's pretty easy. You gather the data, you have to figure out what kind of data you have. And then you download one of the of the libraries, if that makes sense. And they, they build all the models. You, have, you don't have to do that much. And then you have like a predictor, like a classification model that tells you, okay, this is a good customer. This is not so much of a good customer in terms of really fit, uh, segment fit. Um, this machine is likely to break down in the next couple of uh, hours. This machine is not going. That's pretty easy once you've got the data in, uh, in place. The thing so, uh, I mean, and this is still the case, uh, like it was 20 years ago, is in some cases, if you ask the system, so why is it you're making that prediction uh, that this machine is going to break down? Then it basically, the system is shrugging its shoulders, right? And says, yeah, because it's what it says, but, but they have got a very high reliability on the other side. And scientists are still working on that to figure that out. But for many, many cases, uh, it has been proven to apply these artificial neural networks and they're they much more effective than classical statistical methods. They're used anyhow for, for decades, right? For credit scoring, for instance. And, and, and they're ahead of that in, in terms of performance. So it is easy to come up with models that make sense and that you could use. And, and there are some challenges around it. If you go deep into the network, into the uh, technology, of course, everything becomes complicated. Mm -hmm. but I wouldn't be able to explain exactly how the machine in my car works, uh, but, but I still managed to drive it quite fairly across German Autobahn. So that's good. So to generate that data, increasingly companies are working on what are the devices, the connectivity, how do we connect up our business or generate new business models using this connected internet of things to transform and use data. You've done an immense amount of work in this space with, with a whole bunch of companies around the world. What does it take to build an IoT solution? What would, should people be thinking about to go, is my 
company in need of or ready to transform some of our business to an IoT-driven or data-driven solution? Yeah, the, the answer might surprise you, but but actually, I'm, I'm, the most important thing it takes in order to have a successful IoT solution in place is a business problem in the first place. So if you're just going for technology for the sake of technology, that doesn't work. And, and we, we learned that early on, as you mentioned, I've been in charge of IoT for Deutsche Telekom for two and a half years. And uh, we initially started by throwing the technology that we have and, and, and that we really understand at our customers. But, but that doesn't make sense at all, right? You, you need to understand, okay, what is the business problem? And then figure out backwards from that business problem, what kind of data would be required? How would I gather the data in the first place? Or what kind of network? What kind of, of information do I use? Like predictive maintenance, right? You can do that on the electricity consumption of a machine. You can do that on the sound. Uh, you can even do that in, in infrared vision and in these kind of things. And what is the most appropriate way to gather that data? But that's only the second question. So the business problem in the first place, and then everything stems from that, actually. You've been doing this for a long time. What what have been some of the transformative examples where you've seen IoT and then AI really create a different way of working or a new business model? The, the most obvious one is, and we've touched upon this a couple of times earlier, is predictive maintenance, where you yeah. where you much smarter, much more efficient in terms of when would you actually maintain your machine? And, and machine is a broad concept, right? There's stuff on the shop floor, but, but also elevators. All these kinds of machines are affected by this one. And then there, there was like one example, which is actually my favorite. There was a coffee, as the company still is there. There was a coffee machine manufacturer, and, and they used to sell their equipment to the coffee shops. We've got a couple of them in, in, in Melbourne, as I remember. Yeah, one or two. Uh, and what they did, they shifted from selling coffee machine to selling coffee because they were able, at the, at the one point, they were able just to measure how much espresso or flat whites have been produced. Uh, and they were get, basically getting revenue share uh, on the one hand side. They used that kind of information at the same time to do predictive maintenance, right? There are a lot of coffees have been brewed from, from that and apparently it needs to have that maintenance uh, much earlier. And they shifted their model from one-off payments, CapEx, to uh, a per cup of coffee payment. And this is like a, a very interesting one because it also led them from, let's see, sell as many machines as possible uh, to the coffee shop to uh, let's make sure that these machines work as long as possible mm-hmm. doing an excellent coffee. And, and this is, of course, helping to some extent to enhance sustainability at the same time when they're becoming more profitable. So this is probably... The reason why I like this example pretty much. It's great. So it transformed the business model from selling boxes of coffee machines to getting the right value per cup of coffee, extending the life, aligned the incentive of the coffee machine and the, and the end user. That's pretty awesome. How about 5G? IoT obviously is running on a variety of networks, but broadly 4G initially, 4G LTE type networks with narrowband IoT, etc. Does 5G change the game? Does it really supercharge this? Yeah, I'm sure it will. I mean, on the one hand side, everyone is, is talking about a couple of things of 5G, which is speed. On the one hand side, will be a massive increase. It will be a latency, which is the time it, it takes to send a signal around in uh, in the network. But the more important thing for IoT is, is the huge amount of devices that can be connected to a single tower, much more than, than it's uh, doable today, depending on whom you ask, between factor 100 and 1,000. And this is key if you have all these kind of devices being connected, very high reliability, very high speed, there will be energy efficiency coming into the game quite early, which is important for a variety because you don't want to change batteries every week uh, on all of your devices. 
And therefore, I think it, it will make will make a difference. Uh, in particular, the so-called campus networks, where you can do industrial IoT in an area where, like, like could be a logistic hub, could be a shop floor, where all the devices are being connected at high speed in, in truly real time. As I said, very low latency. And this is where it will make a lot of difference uh, because you can now easily connect devices that beforehand that you were never able to connect. Do you think there's a world where with 5G technologies and campuses becoming their own epicenter of connectivity that telcos will ever be relegated to being a roaming service that just connects large campuses or environments together or will telcos always be able to hold their stay as, as the owner of the national network? That's an interesting thing, and I, I, I think it, it will be, uh, depending on the region, uh, I think unlike in Australia, in, in, in Germany, for instance, as, there might be a model that will be adopted in, in other parts of the world as well. In Germany, the regulator has decided to, to keep part of the spectrum away and give it away to industrial companies like Siemens, Bosch, you probably have heard of them. Ah, yeah. um, and they basically um, having their, their own spectrum, and they can run their own dedicated private 5G networks. As you can imagine, not all telcos like that idea uh, for obvious reasons. But good news here is for telco as well, they, 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 those companies, demands or others, the large ones or the auto manufacturers, they require someone to manage the network. And this is at, at the core of what, what telcos do. And then they come back into the game. And, and it's normally, it's like three entities. It's the company itself that is having that license the network equipment manufacturer. And then it's it's a telco, so it will be like a different uh, share of revenues and, and profit, but telcos still will be in, involved in that as well. And I imagine that will drive a different level of innovation where they've got access to, I guess, the raw assets of, of telecommunications. They'll be incented to drive innovation in a way that a telco itself may not. That's true. I mean, I, ideally, and, and this is one thing which I've learned throughout the, the last years at, at Deutsche and, and running innovation. Innovation is more successful if you involve the parties that actually are required. So if telcos sit together with the companies and network equipment manufacturers, it's not like one stipulating a great idea on all the rest of the ecosystem, but doing that jointly is definitely a huge advantage, which massively increases your odds of success. I wanted to ask you a question about financial services, if I may. I know you've done some work in that space. What do you think about the future of financial services innovation in the next five years, and particularly in the 5G and AI space? In any particular developments there you think that are going to be breakthroughs? Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely, I think given the, uh, the, the ongoing uh, stress under which the banking system and the financial services in, in more general are with low to no interest uh, rate, if you will, so the business model is, is, is basically crumbling. What we see in, in Europe more than, than in Australia, to my surprise, is basically that there is a fast proliferation of innovative services that are uh, tackling the, the plain vanilla stuff, which like a payment and a transfer of money. And there are a couple of quite successful examples. I understand that Revolut is available in, in Australia as well. They're quite successful in Europe. They've got signed up now like 5 million customers in Europe mm. and others are following quite fast. And on top of that, there is a tendency to have these fintechs that basically plug into their systems quite nicely. So when I when I returned to Germany beginning of this year, I came across a company called Scalable.com. And what they're basically doing, they're making the more advanced financial services available to everyone. They have a democratizing financial services and it's more like the more modern investment stuff. And I most recently came across another company called Moonfair. And what they're doing, they're, they're opening up private equity investment which used to be open to institutional investors in the past to like the more normal investor, if you will, not as affluent as uh, pension funds. 
And it's so easy to sign that up. It's, it's really unbelievable as compared to how long it takes to open just a simple bank account with a brick and mortar uh, bank going forward. And this is going to make a huge difference to the benefit uh, of the customer. And I'm really, really looking forward to seeing how this industry will, will be transformed going forward. While we're on that topic, yeah, you spend some time in Australia. What are the differences, if you see any, between, say, Europe and Australia in terms of how corporates are innovating? Their appetite for innovation, their investment profile, the things they're doing, is it the same? Is it different? I'd love to hear your thoughts. That was actually one of the most important experiences that I had when I spent time in Australia because if you've lived too long in Europe, uh, to put it that way, you think, okay, well, we're just moving so slow, we're not risk-taking, and so on and so forth. And I think in terms of willingness to innovate, the European companies, and Germany in particular, they are not that bad, right? We, we have been taking risks at Deutsche, we have been seeing other companies taking risks and innovation and being at the forefront of it and not being overtaken. Of course, we, we have been overtaken as well by, by startups and they basically have, have eaten our lunch, if you will. But coming to Australia, I think that there is a limited risk appetite and that there isn't perceived lack of a need for innovation, if you will, in many cases, because it's not as competitive as, as markets, for instance, in Europe or in the US. But this, of course, leads to an advantage for those companies that are able and, and willing to take that opportunity seriously on, on innovation and really differentiate versus their competition. And therefore, I mean, the technology is, is not that complicated, quite frankly, in these days. It's just like you have to sit down and, and reconsider your business model. And if you do that, it, it can really help you leapfrog your competition by taking that uh, opportunity. It's not all about disruption. It's about having incremental enhancement of your business model of, of the stuff that you're doing. And, and that can make a huge difference in, in terms of customer experience and ultimately in terms of revenue and, and profit. What would be a great example of that incremental innovation or that incremental shift in your business model that you can think of? Well, there are a couple of things. One from a B2B uh, business that I mentioned on the coffee machine maker on the one yeah. hand side. And another example is, is Revolut. When I came to Australia, I opened up a bank account with one of the classical banks. And it took me literally like more than a day, right? And we're not talking about credit card yet. And, and a friend of mine recommended me Revolut, which was in beta testing at that point in time. It was Q4 in uh, 2019. And setting up that account and, and transferring the first 25 bucks from my Apple Pay account to my newly opened Revolut account, it, it took me, and this is no exaggeration, no marketing, I'm not on the payroll of, of Revolut, <laughs> but it, it just took me seriously six minutes. I still needed to verify the account because I didn't have at that point in time an Australian driver license, but if I had this one, I would have been through with the entire process in seven minutes, right? And banking, you always, if you talk to banks in, in, in Europe, they always tell you, well, we are managing the interface to the customers, right? So we are owning the customers. Can you imagine whom, whom the customer wants to be owned by in these two examples, right? It's probably one who is just so freaking fast, you don't have to do things twice. And this is going to, to change business models. They might not make money on the transaction fees, even so I'm sure they make some money on it. But it, it's so easy. So this is something uh, which you would definitely want to consider. On. And, and then the other thing is, making more use of the data that you have from your customer and, and just combining data that is available. Right? I'm not talking about gathering data out of the pockets from the customer. That doesn't make sense. I mean, it will always backfire on you, but really doing stuff based on data that is available and figuring out what, what would be the most promising thing to do with my customer going forward based on the data that I have. And this will have an impact. And this is something which you need to consider as a company. And they, I think they're not doing that strong enough or not seriously enough in many, many cases. 
Yeah, I, I agree. I, let's, let's think about leadership then in that regard. I think part of the challenge for the corporate is, you know, a dollar spent on innovation that has a three-year payoff or more is often much harder to justify than a dollar spent on trying to fix the core or take costs out in the current environment and be, be in better shape for the next quarterly earnings report. And we see that so often, right? But that comes down to leadership, being able to hold a narrative, tell a story, take the market on a, on a longer-term journey than just the next quarter. What do you see as great leadership in this time? Are there any examples that you can think of? And how do we tackle this? How do we as leaders step up and change the narrative for our companies? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's so right what you're saying and resonates so well with, with my experience because, I mean, if, if you're investing into a new business and, and if you're the CEO, you can, sure, if it blows up, it will be probably while you're on the board, right? If, if it works out, your successor will, will highly appreciate to be able to tell that it was his idea, right? <laughs> Yeah, but this being said, I mean, you're right. But on the one hand side, first of all, whether someone has been a good leader or not is always taught afterwards, right? Once that leader is gone and, and therefore you have to take care of that. Uh, and there are a couple of examples out there. Uh, the other thing is it requires, of course, courage to do something, but, but also the willingness and the, and the ability to understand what's going on through digitization. And therefore, I think the, the most impressive example that I personally experienced was when the board of Deutsche Telekom, the executive board, they spent half a day with a subject matter expert, actually a professor from Stanford, Singularity University, explaining to the board uh, what the implications of artificial intelligence might be. And it was really like a, a very high-end executive education, if you will. Um, they listened carefully. And ever since, when there was a discussion where uh, apparently AI could make a difference, uh, they referred to it. So they have, they have listened, they have absorbed it. And this is like something which you probably the most important thing, make yourself knowledgeable. Don't be scared and don't delegate to, to level N minus 14 and have them work on that. It, that doesn't work. You have to absorb it. You don't need to drive it, but you need to understand it. Can I ask you a question? I ask a lot of guests. Do you have a favorite kill in, in and amongst the projects that you've had to work, that you've worked on and led and innovations that you've worked on? Has there been one that you just didn't make it, wasn't going to make it, you had to put a bullet in it early? Uh, they're always hard to shoot, but when you look back, you feel like, you know, you made the right call. Have you had one of those? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just like each innovation that you're working on, they're always kind of your baby, right? And, and this <laughs> is what makes it so hard to say goodbye. And sometimes you, you spend more time and money on it than, than you should actually should in, in hindsight. Now, there is one thing uh, which, again, in hindsight, um, made a lot of sense to stop it. And that was four or five years ago, a program called mobile wallet by Deutsche Telekom, which was basically trying to do something similar that Apple did. Yeah. And I, when, when I was put in charge for this innovation area, it was already there. I looked at it, I gave it half a year and I said, okay, this is never going to work out for various reasons because the German banking system is so conservative and they were just making jokes when we met them. They were making jokes on Google. I mean, it takes some confidence to do that. <laughs> and Apple has done that. And then also um, the, uh, payment solution of Android, they provide the services. And it simply didn't work because the ecosystem wasn't ready and willing. Uh, we spent a lot of money at it at, at Deutsche and, and, and we stopped it. The idea was okay, but if you see that the circumstances won't, won't provide a tailwind, then, then we had to stop it. And there was probably in, in, in inside the right decision to make. It sounds like it. There have been hard ones for telcos to pull off those, uh, the mobile money play. In and amongst all of uh, these, the innovative work that you've done, uh, I'm really interested in asking how people view partnerships and working outside of the core business, because I think in Australia, we're not great at this. We tend to like to want to solve the problem 
own the value, do it all ourselves in, within the corporate, rather than reach out and work in ecosystems and partner well in ecosystems. How do you see that in Europe and, and in your work? How important are partnerships in finding big plays, big innovation, innovation plays? I think they're of utmost importance uh, for, for a couple of reasons. And we pretty much stress that at Deutsche was even at one point in time for a period of five years from 2010 on, it was winning with partners, which was one of the four strategic pillars at Deutsche uh, Telekom. And, and really for a good reason. I have to admit, I was initially skeptical when, when this was laid out by the board. But the one reason definitely that convinced me when, when you do that, when you start winning with partners, and we initially we spoke to companies like Evernote, you probably know, know yeah. them, great company, and a couple of others. And, and we spent quite some time initially in Silicon Valley, but thereafter also in Tel Aviv and Israel, uh, where all these startups are. And first of all, it gives you an impression on how they work, right? How they take their jobs serious, not necessarily take themselves too serious. It's really just fun being around, right? And, and you, can, you could see at one point in time when our then CEO, René Oermann, came back from a visit in Silicon Valley, he was wearing a hoodie, right? At that point in time, no one in Germany would even consider wearing a hoodie, right? But it's just like, I think it, it, it illustrates how this changed the culture of Deutsche. So that was the one reason. And then if you look at it, all the stuff that we did at Deutsche thereafter, only at least a lot of the stuff that we did at Deutsche, I, we talked about Kivicon earlier. And this was only able to be successful in the market because we tapped into the resources, into the assets of partners. And it's simply not doable having this, this integrated ecosystem work and, and not being able to work with partners. I have to say so, and this is the, the, the hard part of it. I mean, Deutsche is, is now, for years now, it's really excellent and that we're highly appreciated by, by our partners. But it, it's hard initially because there is this uh, not in my backyard uh, syndrome in all the companies. It hasn't invented here at company yeah. X Y that can't be good, which is, let me put it that way, it's bullshit. Because <laughs> we learned that many, many cases, great ideas actually proliferate from the startups uh, into the company. And also we, we started working in this agile manner in Deutsche back in 2013. And that was inspired not because everyone was at the corporate board was, was talking about working agile. We basically stole it with pride from the smaller uh, startups that we work with because they've all been doing that for quite a while. Yeah. And therefore, it's on the one hand side, yes, it enables partnership is so important because it enables the cultural and digital transformation of your company, but it also helps build greater products and services. Ingo, that's been fantastic. I think we've, we've covered some great ground. The future of IoT and AO and 5G with corporates, how they should face into it. And then really, you know, some of the really key things about how to innovate scale. So. I thank you so much for your time. We will keep talking, uh, so I'm looking forward to our next conversation. But for my listeners, thank you so much. Auf Wiedersehen, and we hope to uh, speak again soon. It was my pleasure, John. That's it for this episode of The Corporate Innovator. As always, thanks for listening, and if you're loving the episodes, be sure to tell your friends or leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcast. If you've got any thoughts, questions, or guest ideas for the show, you can email me at hi at ie.com.au. See you next time.